Welcome to the Sunday Sermons Podcast. It was recorded on a Sunday morning at Morrison Hill Christian Church in Kingston, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the truths and strategies presented in this message will equip you to become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome again to Morrison Hill Christian Church. It's so great to see at least a few people here in this room and to be able to worship with a a big band again. And we're so thankful for everyone who's kept things going. We're so thankful for everybody who's participated online and all the other different ways people have kept God's purposes going throughout this whole thing. And as we start to regroup, as we start to wade back into the waters of focusing on live worship, we want you to know a couple of things. This is much more, by the way, than just a public service announcement. This is actually a really practical application to the message today. But as we regroup, it's important that we remember our role as Christians. We are to be salt and light in this world. We are to set an example of what it looks like to have our ultimate allegiance be to God, that our ultimate purpose on this earth, no matter what other purposes and what other things we involve ourselves in, has to be making the world a better place in his name. And as we regroup, this is my hope and my prayer for all of you, is that as we start to come from whatever places we have all been and we start to meet in the same room again, that people will be able to set aside any differences that they have, any different ways of understanding certain things or practices, and just focus on the love, focus on the grace. Uh, For example, thank you for whatever grace you extended to us having silence at the beginning of this broadcast, I think it's called this morning. We're still learning and, and we, we, we doing that. But let me, let me say really quickly, uh, this is how I see this going down. Number one, we're going to continue the online experiences. And for those of you who, uh, for whatever reason, medical or otherwise, you feel like this is what you need to do at this time, we're not, we don't have any plans to stop making Morrison Hill an online live experience. Uh, Next week, we plan to make two services happen again. Both will be live in this building, but we are going to live stream both of them, and you're invited to continue to join us that. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to hate you. We're not going to consider you outside of the family. Uh, We're going to respect that decision, and we hope you respect ours as we start to meet together live. Same way, everybody who, I think the majority, the vast majority are going to join live, and you're going to see people wearing masks and people not wearing masks, and there will probably be some other things that people make different choices about. Whatever choice you feel led to do, let's focus on our love for each other. Let's focus on our unity. Let's focus on the need to regroup and refocus and actually continue to make the world a better place in God's name. That's where we're headed today in this story, and I hope that that, that, that's a practical application that we can all use in this season. Today is the third day in a series on ultimate authority. Once a year, we come back to this theme in one way or another. We always pray and ask God, how do you want us to explore that this time? Uh, We remember together, for example, that Jesus Christ is our ultimate authority, above and beyond any other authority. And whatever authorities we submit to, it's because we do that out of reverence for Jesus Christ. We also remember together that we are his representatives on this earth that his Holy Spirit lives in us, and that we are supposed to be making this world better. All the things I just said is stuff that we need reminded of all the time. 
But specifically, this particular series is called For Such a Time as This. And we're exploring some of the amazing stories that God has given us in his word. And today we're going to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We kind of started their story last week. Uh, Not kind of. We did start their Sunday. (laughs) We did start their story last week with uh, Daniel. They were captured and went with all the stories with him. We're going to review those in a second together. But here's the first thing I need you to do. In the back of your head, while we're walking through this story together, I'd like you to ask this question. When and how should Christians resist authority? When and how should Christians resist authority? This story has always been some, a, a, a story that Christians use to justify resisting authority, and for good reason. But I'd like us to find a biblical idea of how this works this morning. So rather than just tell you something, let's explore the story together. Also, let's look at some other scriptures. Whatever choice we end up feeling led that God is leading us to do about resisting or submitting to authority, it's got to start with what his word tells us. For example, Romans 13 says, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and will be punished. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Whatever we feel like God is leading us to do, to submit or to resist ever, also has to take into consideration, again, what Jesus told us about ourselves. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, your good deeds shine out. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story begins in a really dark season for Israel where once again they had lost their saltiness. God had always hoped that Abraham and his descendants would be the one people on earth that would consistently worship him and consider him their ultimate authority. And instead, once again in this season for an extended period of time, despite a lot of warnings and a lot of chances, they had completely surrendered to the foreign idols that, they, that surrounded them, and they had only trusted in human authority. They no longer even considered God's authority in any of the choices they were making. And so in 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar II invaded Jerusalem. And I use those specifics just to remind us that these aren't stories someone made up. These are real history. These were real people who interacted with the same God we interact with on the same planet we are walking around on. And we can learn some really practical things from these people of how they did that. Daniel and his four friends had to submit a lot on a daily basis. Even their names were changed. The Babylonians changed all four of their names to names that honored foreign gods, honored their idols. And I'm not sure why they were okay with that. I'm not sure why we still call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which were their Babylonian names. But we do, and that's what they were known by. That's what the text refers to them as. 
Somehow that one was okay, and yet there were several times where they did stand up and they did resist. Uh, last week we looked at one of those examples. Uh, Daniel 1.8 says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And if you remember, his three friends were a huge part of this whole process. The prayer, the decision, the diet part of it, the 10-day test. And they were also part of the fruit on the other side of that. They gained the respect of those who were mentoring them. And they gained respect for their mentors because they, were, they realized they were at least reasonable even if they, they uh, didn't agree on everything. Later, we also see that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and threatened to kill all the wise men of the country and also all those in training, which would have included these four friends. Once again, Daniel's the clear leader, but they work as a team and they pray together. And when God gives Daniel the answer that the king needs, they all were able to celebrate not only the situation, being able to stay alive, but also participate in a lot of good um, outcomes from that thing. Um, I'm sorry, from that thing. They, they were, as individuals and also together, they were able to pray and stand together. And that gave them more respect and more bigger roles to play. And this is something that we've got to see still carries over to us in the New Testament and how we live today. There are so many verses, so many passages that tell us that we as individuals interact with God. We as individuals have choices we have to make. We as individuals are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And yet there are other passages that make it just as clear that together we are also playing these roles. There is another level of it that we have to do together. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, as in you collectively, you plural. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. So again, whatever questions, whatever answers we have about these issues, we've got to find in Scripture. And somehow it's going to involve us working together with humble courage. It's not going to be just one person standing up and shaking their fists. It's not going to be all of us shaking our fists, I don't think. But let's continue to look. These four friends give us such a wonderful example. Well, at the end of chapter 2, we see that Daniel and his friends are all elevated to some increased responsibility. Daniel 2.49 says, At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. Now we come to Daniel chapter 3, which is all about these three friends. That's where we're heading mostly today. The text tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden image that was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Traditionally, we've always used a picture of him. We think it's a statue of him, but the proportions are a little bit off. It was a very distorted image of him, if that's what it is. It's very clearly covered in gold and 90 feet tall. Those are the details that were given about this image. And, and also, it's told, we're told where it was. It was in the plain of Dura, which is in the very center of Babylon, and it's a spot that's visible from just about everywhere. So the obvious point that the writer, that the Spirit used to give us this story was making is this. There was no way to miss this statue. Anywhere you were in Babylon, whatever it looked like, you could not miss a 90-foot shining gold statue. 
It was going to be visible. And that's the point. Daniel 3, verses 2 to 3 say, And then he, which is Nebuchadnezzar, then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is a good chance for most of you probably to ask, so where's Daniel in this story? There's several theories. Um, I'm not sure I buy into any of them. I'm going to share one of my own in just a minute. Here's some of the ones people have said. Maybe he was, as a palace person, maybe he was functioning as an ambassador. Maybe he was out of town. Maybe this is his one moment of weakness. Maybe he did bow down to the statue. Um, a lot of people have a lot of theories. I'm going to tell you mine in a second, but the scripture doesn't tell us exactly where Daniel is. So you can take my idea or leave it in a moment. But here, back to the story. Then a herald shelled it out. People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. By the way, this picture you're looking at is from that era. This is one of those orchestra kind of things they had going back then. I just thought that picture was really cool. Here's the thing you need to notice, though, what he's asking them to do. When he says to worship the statue, he's not starting a new religion. All throughout the scripture, the core idea of worship is pledging allegiance. It's complete submission. And that, we've always got to remember that together, even in the modern sense of worship. These days, when we say worship, we tend to think of a worship service kind of what we're doing exactly right now, or maybe even zoom in a little tighter and say it's the part of our worship service where we sing our worship to God. Neither one of those is wrong. It's just that's not the core essence of what worship means in the scripture. The core essence means you are completely submitting to someone. You are physically or metaphorically or both bowing down to someone else. You are pledging your complete allegiance to them, life or death. And that's what makes a worship service worship to God. As we pray together, as we give together, as we sing together, as we walk through his word together, whatever it is that we're doing together, God considers it worship if we are genuinely pledging our unconditional allegiance to him. Anything else, all the wonderful feelings and the fun and the fellowship, all of which is equally important, but that's all more for us. What God really loves about it is, is, is us completely surrendering to him. Well, this is what Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to do here. This is what he's asking for. He's asking them to completely pledge unconditional allegiance to him. And I think that it's significant at this point in the story to note that it never actually says in the text that they didn't bow down. It's obvious that they did not. But that's my personal theory about where Daniel was. The way the story actually goes in the text, and you should read it yourself, Daniel chapter 3. Go read it yourself in any version you love to read. It just tells the story. It says this was the command, and as soon as, the, as soon as that command was made, here come some tattlers to go and talk to the king and say that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow. 
I thought that was really significant. I'd honestly never noticed that until I read it this time. They clearly did not, but, but, but there's no this moment where it says, and only they stood, and then this happened. It's, it, we, we get that from the story. It's very clear. So maybe, this is my theory, maybe Daniel didn't stand either, but at that moment, nobody was mad at him enough for whatever reason to go tattle on him. And here's another life hack. This I know for sure. I'll just give you this one as a freebie in the middle of this story. If somebody ever comes to you and they're tattling on someone else or they're gossiping to you, there's only one thing you can know for sure. And that is that person that is talking to you is comfortable talking about someone else badly behind their back. They may mean it for all the right reasons. They may be telling the truth. They may mean it for really bad reasons. They may be lying. You don't know that in that moment. What you know is this is somebody who likes to talk behind other people's back in a negative way. It's a life hack that you just need to keep in mind. So here we go. Here's what we know for sure from the text. Some of these people, some of their peers go to King Nebuchadnezzar and they tattle and they say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not doing two specific things. First off, they're not worshiping your gods. You probably already knew that. They're not serving your idols. Second thing is they also will not worship. They will not pledge allegiance. They will not bow down to this big statue that you just told us all to stand down to. Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and he ordered that they be brought in before him. When they were brought in, here's what he said. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? He gives them one more chance. And he says this, but... If you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Their reply is one of the coolest things in the whole scripture to me. So, so inspiring. This is what they said. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. So again, if you're asking these questions, I ask you to ask. This isn't a a clear answer yet, but this has got to be in the direction. Notice that they're being respectful. Notice they aren't trying to start a revolution. Notice they aren't trying to assassinate King Nebuchadnezzar or or do any other, I could list a bunch of things they're not doing. I don't want to waste your time doing that. But notice what they are doing. They're drawing a clear line in the sand. When it comes down to it, if I have to choose to serve God or you, that decision was made a long time ago. King Nebuchadnezzar did not realize that they had committed themselves unconditionally to God. And that's what we need to do. We must commit ourselves to trust God unconditionally. For some reason, a lot of times, this is just us being humans, I think, but we tend to trust God and we assume that there's going to be something in addition to all the other things he's already done for us. If I trust him, then he's going to reward me with these additional things. Or I'm going to trust him, but if things get really crazy in this one area, I'll probably back off a little bit. But when God really comes through miraculously is when we put our unconditional, complete trust in him. 
when we pledge our allegiance to him above and beyond any other allegiance anywhere, when the reason we're willing to submit to any authority anywhere ever is out of our respect for him. That's when God says, okay, I'm going to help you. There's some other really cool details that were given in this story. One is that King Nebuchadnezzar was so angry in this moment that his face became distorted with rage. That he not only, um, he not only just threw them in this furnace, but he made them crank it up seven times hotter than normal. That he ordered not just that someone throw them in, but they get the strongest men in the army to, to um, tie them up and throw them in. And that when they did that, these strongest men he had died just from getting close to the flame. That's just how hot it was. Some other interesting details are that they were fully dressed. And depending on the translation uh, and when it was translated, it might say different words. But basically what it describes them wearing, things on their legs, things on their bodies, things on their head, it's Babylonian outfits. This is another thing that they had submitted to. They were wearing those things, not so much the bathrobe looking uh, Bible costumes that we normally picture them in and see in coloring books. They were dressed up like Babylonians, all of which, all of those clothes, by the way, were extremely flammable. And they're thrown into this fiery furnace wearing that. Daniel chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. But suddenly... Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Once again, there's a lot of theories about who this was. Was this the angel of the Lord that wrestled with Jacob? Was it somehow... A lot of people have some theories. Here's what's very, very, very clear. God was present with them. This is God's promise to all of us. Is that no matter what we go through, he will be there with us. That even if we gather in his name, that he will be in our midst in a special way that when we praise him that he dwells he's physically present somehow and he's everywhere in one sense and then he's even more present in the praises of his people and when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death he's with us just as much as when he's leading us by still waters and by the great green grasses and the shady trees that we all love a lot better than the valley of the shadow of death but this is a tangible example of God showing up being there. I I could give you countless examples. I'll just give you one more in the scripture that I love a lot of this same promise to everyone. It's in Joshua 9 when he told Joshua, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Well, Nebuchadnezzar calls them back out and here they come walking out of the fire. Nobody can get close to the fire to pull them out, but they don't need to. They walk out on their own. Just three, though. The other one disappears. And it says that everyone gathers around and inspects them, and not a hair on their heads was singed. Their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. And if you're someone who loves campfires as much as I do, you know that that's a miracle in and of itself. Everything smells like smoke, after you've been around a campfire, even imagine being in it. Um, that, that, that's a pretty cool detail as well. 
But then Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They defiled the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And therefore, and at this moment, I, I, this is just my own imagination, so indulge me a second. But before this, it sounds like that the fiery furnace was like his big threat to everyone. And if you don't listen to what I say, you're going to be thrown in that fiery furnace. And, and, but notice what he says here. And, and I almost, I, it doesn't say that he paused. This is just my imagination. I'm going to read it word for word, but this is how I picture him saying it. And if anybody does say anything bad against the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, I will tear you limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. Notice he changes this because the fiery furnace isn't quite as scary as it used to be. The king promoted them to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. So now we get back to our original question. When and how should Christians resist authority? Again, we're asking that question because, honestly, this story is one of the the reasons we have this phrase in English, take a stand, or to stand up for what you believe. It's it's partly from this story in the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't bow. Don't bow to any idols. We get that from this story. But Christians, just like we usually do about almost everything, have interpreted this idea a lot. So I just want to give you some guidelines about maybe how you and I, even if we're a little bit different, let's make sure we're consistent about the same things. Let's make sure we're consistent. Number one, we must fear God more than anyone else. We must commit to trust God unconditionally. We submit and compromise wherever we can out of reverence for Christ but we respect authority out of reverence for God. And when it comes down to it, we remember this. Worship means submission. It means pledging allegiance. Worship is not just something we do because it's fun. Hopefully it is. Worship is not just something we do because that's what you do on Sundays. I hope that becomes just part of all of our collective rhythm again really, really soon. But those aren't why we do worship. We worship because we need to consistently, regularly, together as well as separate, pledge allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We do it in these specific ways for specific reasons, but that is why we do this. And we must never bow down to tyrants that defy God. We must never bow down to any authority that asks us to pledge a higher allegiance to them than to God. Now, the truth is, a lot of times, I'd say most of the time, the tyrants that ask us to do that are inside of us. They're our own doubts and our own fears. They're us trying to worry about peer pressure from other human beings that we love, not even people who are necessarily threatening us in any way. A lot of times the tyrants that is the hardest to not bow to are the things that we're worried about deep down inside. Those five fears that we went back through over and over several times not too long ago. Death, suffering, rejection, isolation, humiliation. Those are the things that tend to mess us up much more often, even in persecuted countries, I believe. that It's that internal struggle that makes it hard to submit fully to God much more than the external things that stir that stuff up. 
But here's what we've got to remember. We're not here to, to be in line. I think by and large, day to day, most Christians should be the best at submitting because we're submitting out of reverence for Christ. By and large, we should be the best team players there are because we do that as part of our allegiance to Christ. But when it comes down to it, the world doesn't need more potatoes in a big sack full of potatoes. They need salt. They don't need any more darkness. They got plenty of darkness. They need light. And guess who that is? That's us. Because we represent the ultimate light of the world. The world doesn't just need one more answer. The world doesn't need the latest thing to be excited about or afraid about or whatever the latest thing may be. The world needs the absolute truth. And guess who knows that? Us, the people of God. That's why Jesus gave us the Great Commission. That's why Paul said what Billy just read to you a little while, a little while ago, that we have got to allow our minds to be transformed by constantly submitting to God. We cannot conform to the pattern of this dark world. And when we do that, when we are transformed instead of conformed, that's when we get to know God's good and perfect will. Romans 12, 1 and 2, look it up. This is our identity. This is our purpose on this earth. And we, to live this identity out, we have got to commit to trust God unconditionally. And that is the commitment I ask you to make this morning. Maybe you've made it many times. Maybe it's your first time, but this is what it takes to follow God. This is where taking a stand for what is really true and important begins, is you commit before you're in the stressful situation, before you ever are given any other options, you commit in advance. Make that decision in advance to completely surrender to God, to fear God much more than any other authority ever. And that has to be unconditional. And when you do that, then you're set free to bless others with the blessings God gives you. You're set free to work together in humble courage and accomplish his purposes on this earth. You are set free to do your part strategically, to work creatively to get the things done that he wants you to do as an individual and as a team. You're set free to find a way to trust and obey, not decide whether you will or not. Just simply concentrate on finding out the way you're going to get it done. When you make a commitment to trust God unconditionally, that's when all of the other stuff starts to become a possibility for you. So that's my challenge to you this morning. Maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe many times in your life you have taken a stand for God. Maybe many times in your life you have made and remade this commitment. I encourage you to make it one more time. We're going to sing one more song. And as we do, may you sing with us. And as you sing, pledge allegiance to the ultimate authority in the universe. Unconditionally. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. And guess what? Our baptistry's back open. Your bathtub probably still works. And you can pray to God anytime. All the other things that would be involved in making a first-time decision. All of our cell phones still work. The internet still works. Any way you need our help to, even if you just inform us or you want help in making that first-time decision, we would love to help you through that. 
If you're thinking about joining our church or whatever other decision you want to make to surrender to God, we encourage you to do that. But, but bottom line, this is all I ask. This is all I'm asking today. Unconditionally commit to God as your ultimate authority. It will set you free in ways you can never imagine. It'll help you be the salt and the light that this world so desperately needs. God bless you. That concludes the Sunday Sermons podcast. You can respond to the invitation you just heard where you are right now. Don't waste this opportunity to change your life for the better. If you've made a decision or are interested in learning more, please visit us at morrisonhill.com.